Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Uh, You may know Blake and Julie are moving into a new house this week, so if you're thinking about them, you could pray, going through all that. It's fun, but it's chaotic, stressful, so pray for them. Uh, You know, when a question is asked in, in church, it's usually a safe bet that the right answer is Jesus, right? Yeah, so that's the right answer this morning. We're just going to talk about Jesus, a lot about Jesus this morning. We're going to begin in chapter 16 of Matthew, in verse 13. Read with me. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. That's the most important question that's ever been asked. In all of human history, the most important question, who is Jesus Christ? It's the most important question because ultimately our eternal destiny hangs upon our answer. So not surprisingly, there's been a fair amount of disagreement through the centuries as to how to answer this question correctly. Years ago, Mikhail Gorbachev said this, Jesus was the first socialist. He was the first to seek a better life for mankind. Prince Philip, who I think just turned 92 this last week, said this, Jesus might be described as an underprivileged working class victim of political and religious persecution. There's another perspective of who Jesus might be. Gandhi said, I cannot say that Jesus was uniquely divine. He was as much God as Krishna or Rama or Muhammad or Zoroaster. Bertrand Russell, the uh, British philosopher and writer, said this, There is one very serious defect to my mind in Christ's moral character, and that is that he believed in hell. It is a doctrine that put cruelty into the world and gave the world generations of cruel torture, and the Christ of the Gospels, if you could take him as his chroniclers represent him, would certainly have to be considered partly responsible for that. Down on our level a little bit more, Mark Eaton said, I think Jesus would have been a great basketball player. He would have been one of the most tenacious guys out there. Nothing dirty, but he'd play to win. (laughs) And H.G. Wells, another British uh, writer, author, philosopher, historian, said, I'm a historian, I'm not a believer. But I must confess, as a historian, that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. And then Albert Einstein wrote, As a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Talmud. I'm a Jew, but I'm enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Who is Jesus Christ? As believers in Jesus Christ, as his followers, as Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ was and is fully God. We believe also that he is fully man. We believe that he accomplished redemption and that he will restore and rule over all of creation. And of course, there is so much more that we could say about him. This morning, we just have about 30 minutes. So I'm going to focus on the first two, touch briefly on the third. Okay, We're going to focus on these first two, a little bit on the third, but I want to focus on the deity of Jesus Christ, that he is fully God. Jesus Christ, fully God. Interesting, uh, if you look at the uh, history of what we know of the Son of God, while he was on earth, 
his deity was constantly attacked. So if you read the Gospels, you're going to notice the fact that the Gospels are attempting to demonstrate the deity of Christ, particularly the Gospel of John. And then if you look at the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they are attempting to demonstrate the Messiahship, the authority of Jesus to fulfill God's plan. If you look at Jesus Christ after his resurrection, it was his humanity that was attacked. If you look at Jesus Christ today, it's his very existence. Did Jesus Christ exist at all? If he did exist, who was this man, Jesus Christ? Certainly he was not a God, or the God, or God in human flesh. And so you see kind of a progression. This began with the Enlightenment, carried on through today. Let me illustrate. Uh, One of our former presidents who was a product of the Enlightenment, Thomas Jefferson, said, I am a Christian. In the only sense he, that is Jesus, wished anyone to be, sincerely attached to his doctrines in preference to all other doctrines, ascribing to himself every human excellence and believing he never claimed any other. So Jefferson had his own Bible, right? And what did he do with his Bible? He took out the scissors and he cut out any reference to Jesus' deity and anything that was miraculous. And he said, this is the actual Jesus of history, just a man. So, as believers in Jesus Christ, defining ourselves as Christians in a slightly different way than Thomas Jefferson, why do we believe in the deity of Jesus Christ? I'm going to give you three basic reasons. The first is this. Jesus made claims about his own deity. I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. John, chapter 8, probably my favorite biblical passage demonstrating the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is in an argument with the Pharisees. He argued with them a lot. And you get a lot of instruction by looking at their arguments. John chapter 8, verse 56. It's the end of the argument. Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out from the temple. Jesus said, Before Abraham was born, I I, I am. And he was making a direct allusion to God's self-revelation. Remember when Moses was called to lead Israel out of slavery, out of bondage in Egypt, take them through the wilderness and take them into the promised land. Moses said to God, who should I say sent me? Because when I show up, God, you haven't spoken to us for 400 years. The people don't really know you. Who are you? Who shall I say is their God, the God who has sent me to deliver them? Who are you? And God said, just tell them this, I am. I am. I am that I am. I've always existed. I am existing. I always will exist. I am the pre-existent, self-existent one. I am. Just tell him I am. Now, when Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am, he's making a direct allusion back to God's self-revelation that he is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God who exists. And there was no doubt in their minds when he said, I am, that he was calling himself God. That's why they picked up stones to throw at him, because he was committing blasphemy in their minds. I am. I am. Turn over a couple more chapters. John chapter 10 and verse 30. Once again, he's in an argument with the Pharisees. Chapter 10, verse 30. He concludes his point by saying this, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. 
For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man and only a man, make yourself out to be God. Now, for those of you who um, love languages and like grammar, I'm one of those odd people. Let me give you a little uh, grammatical nugget that helps illustrate what Jesus is arguing in this point. Uh, In Greek, every noun has a gender. So uh, faith, for example, is feminine. Uh, The word boat is neuter. War is masculine. Not surprising, (laughs) it's masculine, right? So every noun has a gender. Now, some nouns can be stated in any gender. The gender can be flexible depending upon how they function in a sentence. Uh, In this sentence, the word one is a noun, and it uh, can function in masculine, feminine, or neuter, depending on, on the point that is trying to be made. Jesus uses neuter here. One in the neuter form. If he had said one in the masculine form, he would have been saying, I and the Father are one person. Okay? I and the Father are one person. Uh, last week when, when Blake talked about the Trinity, did he get into modalism at all? Anybody remember that term, modalism? Okay, no, probably not. Okay. Um, he talked about probably about some heresies. Modalism is one of the heresies uh, against the Trinity. It's the idea that uh, God is one and he just shows up in three different modes at different points in time. So sometimes you've got God showing up as father and then he decides he's not going to be father anymore. He's going to show up as the son. And then he chooses not to show up as the son anymore. He's going to show up as the spirit. So you just have three different modes in which God demonstrates himself rather than three distinct persons. If Jesus had said, I and the Father are one, and used masculine, he would have been affirming that concept of modalism. Instead, he says it in the neuter, which means, I and the Father are one nature, one essence. We're one thing. But we are distinct. Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. Three persons. You cannot blur the distinctions between the three persons, but one shared nature all are God. The Jews understood exactly what he was saying, so they picked up stones to throw at him again. Turn over again. Now we're still in the Gospel of John. John chapter 14 and verse 8. Jesus is not in an argument at this point, but uh, his disciples don't understand him, which again is not uh, an uncommon thing. So chapter 14, verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now, Philip understood that God is spirit, and people can't see God. And Jesus understood that God is spirit, and people can't see God. So when Philip says, show us the Father, he's saying, manifest who he is to us. And Jesus says, but I have, but I have. Philip, have you been with me so long and you haven't gotten the point if you've seen me? That is, if you've understood my personality and my nature, you've got it because I'm God. I'm God. Let me give you one more illustration from the Gospel of Matthew. The Great Commission It's after Jesus has been uh, resurrected. He has been raised from the dead. He's about to depart earth and he commissions his disciples. It says, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, we're good students of the Bible. 
We've got out our Bible and a paper and pencil and we're doing our observations. One of the things we might notice is the fact that Jesus says, uh, baptize them in the name, singular, of Father, Son, and Spirit. Shouldn't he have said, baptize them in the names of the Father, Son, and Spirit? No. Name, singular, because what does a name represent? Name represents the character and the nature which is one, singular. Father, Son, and Spirit all have just one name. Consistent testimony of Scripture is that Jesus, the eternally preexistent Son of God, is God, fully God. Not less God than the Father or the Spirit. And all three are fully God. Now, it's interesting, there's a common understanding of Jesus that uh, he was, he was a, a good man, he was a good moral teacher, but certainly not the Son of God. Yeah, we, we admire his ethics, Thomas Jefferson loved the ethics of Jesus Christ, his morality, but he said absolutely he cannot be God and God in human flesh. Years ago, C.S. Lewis argued that this is the one position about Jesus that you can't take. And notice Lewis's argument. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of thing Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Lewis's argument is this. Jesus either was God or he was not God. Right? That's a safe, safe statement. He's A or non-A, right? He was God or he was not God. If he was not God, we now have two options. He was not God and he knew he was not God, but he went around telling everybody he was God. He's not a great moral teacher. He's a liar. Or he's not God, he didn't know he was not God, but he went around telling everybody that he was God. He's nuts, okay? A lot of people running around saying, I'm God, right? Do we believe him? No, they're crazy. So either he's not God, in which case he's a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he is God, in which case he is Lord. But don't say he's just a great moral teacher. He's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he is Lord. And that's the consistent testimony of Scripture, that Jesus Christ is, in fact, Lord. Accept him as such or reject him, but that's who he's saying he is. Now, second argument, the actions of Jesus. I want you to turn to the Gospel of Mark with me, chapter 2, verse 4. I should start in verse 1. When Jesus had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. Many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. Okay, so they're all jammed in the house, so much so that people can't even get in the door any longer. It says, they came to him. It's a group, four friends. They came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. Okay, so you had wooden beams packed with 
mud and dirt and stone, and they just begin to chop a hole through the top of this flat roof where normally there's a sitting area, and they're just knocking it down, and dirt's falling down, and the, the, the roof is crashing in. They're making a hole big enough for a pallet to be lowered down right in front of Jesus. When they had dug the opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Whoa. Son, your sins are forgiven. Had, had this man ever personally offended Jesus? Probably not. I don't think he ever knew Jesus. Not, you know, this man hadn't come down and spit in Jesus' face or hopped up and kicked him in the shin. Or done there was no personal offense. But Jesus turns to him and says, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Good theology. Okay? I may offend my friend Eddie Colson. May say something that is um, harmful to him. I gossip about him. How <laughs> do you know about Eddie? <laughs> Eddie finds out. Maybe Eddie doesn't even find out. I feel guilty. I go and I ask Eddie, Eddie's forgiveness. That's good. And he can forgive me. But I have another debt. And that's a debt to God. Because this is a sin that I've committed against a fellow human being created in the image of God. And God keeps a record of that. And I owe God a debt, and I need to seek God's forgiveness. There was no personal offense between Jesus and this man, and yet Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. They understand. Okay? The Pharisees understand that he's taking the place of God and releasing this man from his debt to God. Notice verse 8. It says, immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your pallet, and walk? Well, obviously, I can say your sins are forgiven. You can't see that. Did that debt just get released? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he turns, he speaks to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, take up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. <laughs> wow. You know, and it's not like a miracle on TV. It's not somebody getting out of a wheelchair and then leaning on it and slowly crawling out of the aisle, right? This guy hops up off his pallet, immediately leaves it in the dust and runs out. Okay, it's like when Peter and John heal that paralytic in the temple and he doesn't just kind of crawl out of the temple area. It says he's walking, he's leaping, he's jumping, he's praising God. And people say, we've never seen anything like this. Jesus said, I did that so that you would know I can back up my word. When I say he's forgiven, he's forgiven. Because I am God in human flesh. Now, there are a lot of other divine actions that Jesus did, but to me, this is the most important one. Because you can see so clearly, God alone has the authority to forgive sins. One other argument. The divine claims of Jesus' followers. Yeah, I'm going to put these up for you if you're writing down your verses and you're scrambling. The, the slides will be up um, at least by uh, tonight, tomorrow morning. They'll be up. So if you don't get them all down, that's fine. We won't go through absolutely all of these, but I want to go through a bunch of them. Okay, so hang on. Uh, John chapter 1. Turn there with me if you would please. John chapter 1. John chapter 1 verse 1 starts like this. In the beginning... What's that sound like? Genesis, okay? 
Unabashedly, John is making an allusion to Genesis 1.1. God's act of creation in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, i got to give you another little grammatical wonderful nugget here, okay? In, in Greek, there are several ways you can express the past tense. Uh, one of those ways is what's called the, the aorist form. An aorist is, uh, has, has an aspect that's like this. It's kind of a point-in-time action, okay? Right? I jumped into the water, okay? Just, it happened. That action happened. It happened a moment in time. It's done. Boom, I did it. It's that kind of action. I jumped into the water. One of the other ways that you can talk about the past tense is what's called the imperfect tense. Uh, it's, it's similar to imperfect in Spanish. It, it's a progressive action. Okay? So, I was running to the house. It doesn't talk about when it started or when it ended. It's just this act of running. Okay? This is all in imperfect tense here in John 1 and John, John 1, 1 and John 1, 2. It says, in the beginning was the word. It's not the word became, it's the word just was. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, always. The word was God, always, just was. He was in the beginning with God. Okay? Pre-existent. The Son of God was not made. So, when John says... He is the only begotten of God. He's not saying that Jesus was made. Begotten means fundamentally the one who is unique. So in the book of Hebrews, it says Isaac was the only begotten. Doesn't even mean he was the only son because there was another son. There was an Ishmael, right? He, he was born even before that. It means Isaac was the unique one, the special one, the chosen one. Jesus is the only begotten, the special one, unique one, and he was always with God because he's eternal. Okay? He is also creator. Verse 3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. And if you look throughout the Old Testament, what do you discover? It is God who is the creator. And John says Jesus is the agent of that creation because he is God. Now, turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. Uh, if you are having a conversation with a friend, and you're trying to make the point that Jesus is God, and you kind of start drawing a blank, think John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. 1, 1, 1. Okay, it's nice. like Trinity 2, right? John 1, Hebrews 1, Colossians 1. John 1. Hebrews 1, Colossians 1. Remember, the goal of this whole study, from my perspective at least, is that when you are having a conversation with someone and you're trying to lay out, maybe they're a believer or not a believer, you're trying to persuade or you're trying to encourage and really edify, get somebody built up in their faith, you're sitting there and maybe all that you have is a pencil and a piece of paper. That you would know it to the level that you can map these doctrines out, map these practices out straight from memory. Okay? So I would encourage you, Look back through any notes that you take, put them aside, and give yourself a blank page test. Okay? When I used to teach the essentials class, that's what I would do every week. It's really you know, annoying and frustrating, I know, at times, but I'm like, no, you know, you got it. If you don't, you don't really know it until you can pass it on. That's the point of this. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ doesn't mean just simply that we are maturing and becoming like Christ, but also we can multiply it in the lives of others. 
So talking about the, G, the deity of Christ, think John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. You're going to find something good about Jesus in those chapters, all right? So Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10. It says, you Lord, speaking about the Son, you Lord, you Yahweh in the Old Testament. In the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the works of your hands. Okay, affirming that he is creator. Verse 11. They, that is the works of your hand, creation, will perish, but you remain. They will become old like a garment. And like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. That is, you are immutable, unchangeable. That is a characteristic only of God. Look with me in verse 6. And when he, that is God the Father, again brings the firstborn, that is the preeminent one, or Jesus, when he brings him into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Verse 8, of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. When the firstborn comes into the world, God says, angels, bow down. Now, there are a few occasions throughout Scripture where angels show up and people are just so overwhelmed. Oh, they're so beautiful and powerful and strong. I better worship, right? And they hit the deck. John does it several times in the book of Revelation. And what happens every time? The angel says, no, 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 no. <laughs> you know, people are watching, right? Uh, heaven's watching. We don't do that. We don't do that. You know, I, I had some cousins, other angels who, who wanted that and bad things happened. Don't get up, get up, get up, get up, right? Don't worship me. You only worship God. But God says of the sun, angels get down and lay low because he is God. And Jesus, after he was resurrected, had people come up to him. Mary and Martha were the first, and they fell at his feet, and it says they worshipped him, and Jesus did not make them get up. Thomas said, I, I'm not going to believe until I see him. And Jesus walks through the wall, and he sees Jesus, and Jesus said, here I am. Go ahead, touch. He said, I don't need to anymore. And he falls down, and he worships, and Jesus says, you don't need to get up. Because Jesus is God. Fully God. He's preexistent. He's creator. He's worthy of worship. Hebrews 1 verse 3. He is the radiance of his glory. He is the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Because there are three persons, but just one God. And Jesus is the exact representation the radiance of his glory. He is fully God. So we believe, first, Jesus is fully God in his nature. Second, we believe that Jesus Christ is fully man. Turn back to Matthew with me in chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. That is, she was a virgin, and she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And this is a virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Now, in, in one sense, virgin birth was, was not necessary. Okay? In, in this sense, God could have gone out into the wilderness, so to speak, gathered a bunch of dust, and just made Jesus, just like he made Adam. 
Right? He could have made a, a fully formed adult male and the Spirit could have breathed the Son of God into him and then just dropped Jesus in Jerusalem, right? He could have done it that way, but he didn't. And there, there are a variety of reasons for, for the virgin birth, but one of those was to demonstrate the genuine humanity of Jesus Christ. Here you have a young woman. People find out that she's pregnant. Scandalous. They don't know anything about the Holy Spirit. You know, that's a secret. Joseph and Mary know about it. Elizabeth later. It's scandalous, but she's pregnant. She's really pregnant because they watch. And she gets bigger, she gets bigger, she gets bigger. She takes a trip down to Bethlehem. A few months later, she comes back and she has a baby in her arms. And the baby grows just like every other baby grows and matures, learns to walk, learns to talk. Fully human. One of the reasons for the virgin birth was to demonstrate the full humanity of Jesus Christ. Now, interestingly, after the resurrection and ascension, it was the humanity of Jesus Christ that was attacked within the church among people who call themselves believers because they couldn't understand how God could suffer. So they said, no, Jesus just appeared to be a man. It's called docetism. He just appeared to be a man, but he wasn't really a man, and he didn't really suffer because God can't suffer. It's called docetism. Not really a man. So, as believers in Jesus Christ, why do we believe that he's both fully God and fully man? Okay, I'm going to give you three reasons again. First, the claims of Jesus himself to humanity. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 11, verse 16. Matthew 11, verse 16. Jesus says, To what shall I compare this generation? You're like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to the other children and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. You're not satisfied with anything that we do, in other words. Here's his point. John came neither eating nor drinking. Okay, like a funeral dirge. They say, he's got a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, behold, a gluttonous man, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Verse 19, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. That is the most common title that Jesus gave, gave to himself. Okay, over and over and over again, he says, I am the Son of Man. Who do they say that the Son of Man is? Jesus was Son of Adam, Son of Abraham, Son of David, Son of Man. What he's doing is he's tying himself to humanity. He's saying, I am human. I'm a man. I'm ult- actually the ultimate man. But I'm fully man. Jesus makes this claim over and over and over again. He also does things that are very human. In fact, the accusation here against him is that he eats and drinks too much, right? John didn't do any of that. You know, he just eats grasshoppers and covers them with honey. You know, ah, he's got a demon. There's something wrong with him. Jesus, the claim is he's eating and drinking too much. He's a gluttonous man. He's a drunkard because they see him all the time at parties. Man, he, he, is, he's, he is the life of the party, right? And with wild people, man, that's how he shows up. They're not doubting the fact that he is fully human because he's doing human things. He's eating, he's drinking. Remember that scene when Jesus is on the boat, storm comes in and Jesus falls asleep. Why did Jesus fall asleep? How could he fall asleep in the middle of a storm? I think he's tired, right? I think he's tired. He's been working hard all day. Disciples haven't been doing much of anything except watching And Jesus is worn out, so he falls asleep. Why? Because he's a man. Okay? Men and women, humanity, we work too hard, we become tired. We have to eat. 
I bet Jesus was pretty sore when he slept on the ground and had a rock for a pillow. He's fully man. He did man things, human things. Okay? Second, the actions of Jesus, eating, drinking, sleeping, even after his resurrection. There's a meal prepared, there's fish and bread, and Jesus says, can I have some of that? And he picks it up and he eats it. And he reaches out and he says, why don't you touch my body? It's a resurrection body, but it's a a real body. And there are scars there, which really blows me away. You know, I'm pretty sure I don't fully understand this. But even after the resurrection, Jesus has scars. In other words, Jesus will always be God in human flesh. Jesus will always be the God-man. When he chose to take on human flesh, that was a decision that's going to last forever. So always... When we are in the presence of the Lord and we turn to worship, we will worship the crucified and resurrected Jesus. I think those scars will always serve as a reminder of the price that Christ paid to get us there. To break the power of sin and the penalty of sin in our lives. And we will turn and we will see the Son next to the Father and he will have scars. Fully human. Fully recognizable as Jesus our Savior. Third reason, the claims of his followers to the humanity of Jesus. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Remember John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, and 2. Okay. Hebrews 1 really focuses on the deity of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 2 focuses on the humanity of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 14. It says, therefore, since the children, that's us, okay? therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, we have physical bodies. He himself, likewise, also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. He had to be made in human flesh so that he could die, because God can't die. And that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to the angels, but he does give help to the descendant of Abraham. Here's his point. Jesus didn't take on the form of an angel. He didn't become an angel to rescue those fallen angels. Their fate is sealed. He took on the form of man so that he could rescue mankind, men and women. And so he had to take on full and complete and real humanity. Paul sums it up like this. Colossians chapter 2. It says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Fully God, fully man, two natures, cannot be confused, united in one person, neither nature being diminished. The natures cannot be diminished in any way. They should not be confused in any way, but they are united in one single person that is God in human flesh. Now, so what? Why does it matter? I'm going to give you a couple of reasons. One reason is this. For God to take on human form, for Jesus to be fully human, it means that he really genuinely is an example for us as to how to live. Okay? He, he, lived, he lived the same kind of existence that we live on earth. When it was hot, he was hot. And when, it, when it rained, he got wet. When he worked too hard, he became tired. He needed to sleep. He was hungry. When he was tempted, he felt the pull. Even though he chose always not to sin, he felt it. He knew exactly what it was like. Jesus, remember, in, in the wilderness, 
was led by the Spirit. And it's, it's quite a bit of an understatement. It says after 40 days, he became hungry, right? <laughs> yeah, probably after a, a day or two, we'd be like, where's the food, right? 40 days. Jesus is genuinely, deeply hungry. He has lost weight. And Satan comes to him, he says, make the stones into bread. Could he have done it? Of course. Because he's the creator of the universe. Made the stones. Remember when he had five loaves and two fish, he just started breaking them. He, ma- he can make bread, fish, food out of anything. But he chose not to. He didn't use, in other words, his divine prerogatives, his divine powers. He chose to not use them, to suspend those while he was in human flesh. Instead, he depends upon what? At that point in time, he depended simply on the word of God. And he said, I want God's word, I want God's will more than I want my belly to be full. He said no to his flesh, that is his bodily appetites, to provide us a genuine example. Men and women, we have the same resources. We have the Spirit of God leading us. And sometimes it feels like he is leading us through the wilderness. We have the Word of God. We're also surrounded by the people of God. We have the same resources. Peter says, all that you need and desire for life and godliness, 2 Peter chapter 1, has been given to you in Christ Jesus. We have it. We can be changed and transformed in like Christ. So that's the first reason that he had to take on human flesh. Why did he have to be in human flesh and be fully God? Let me give you another reason. It was required, necessary, for him to accomplish redemption. It had to be. What is a mediator? Well, in biblical terms, a mediator is one who reaches out and touches both parties. We're told in First Timothy chapter 2 that Jesus is the mediator between God and man. To mediate on behalf of man, he had to reach out and touch humanity. He had to be like humanity. We're told that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. In the book of Hebrews, why is that? Because we're not bulls and we're not goats. It had to be a human sacrifice. We have a human high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses in every way. He's merciful to us. So when we call out to him for help, he understands everything that we're experiencing. He's fully human. He can reach out and touch mankind, but also he can reach out and he can touch God because he's an acceptable sacrifice to God. Why? Because he's perfect. The blood and bulls and goats can't take away sins also because they're not perfect. But Jesus Christ lived a perfect life as the God-man and his sacrifice, okay, one sacrifice for everyone's sin for all of human history. And God said, that's enough. Why? Because he was fully God. God in human flesh. Wow, that's amazing. It is the greatest miracle in the Bible. That God could take on human flesh. We don't know how it could be. God doesn't tell us the mechanism for it to happen. We're just told in Philippians that Jesus emptied himself, that it was a sacrifice, not emptying himself of deity, but an emptying by taking on something like this, <laughs> flesh and blood, and all of the frustrations that come with it. A human body that could suffer on our behalf and could die on our behalf and be an acceptable sacrifice to God because he is God. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. 
If you have never come to God and said, God, I, I believe, I believe that Jesus is God in human flesh. I believe that his sacrifice paid the debt of my sin so that that barrier of my sin is removed and I can have eternal life. Let me encourage you this morning that this morning you, you turn to God and say, God, yes, thank you. I believe. The moment you do that, the debt is removed. You have life that lasts forever. And it could only be accomplished through Jesus Christ. He's the centerpiece of the Bible. He's the point of all of this revelation. He's the centerpiece of history. It's where history is moving. One day we know that he will return. He will reign over everything. And that he has given us a reason right now to worship him and to put all of our lives, wrap all of our lives around him as the center, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus. Jesus, I thank you that you were willing to set aside all of the the prerogatives of perfect fellowship with your Father and come down here and suffer the humiliation of taking on human flesh, to be born as a baby, to to live, and then to die for us. And all the suffering that that entailed, I thank you for that. I thank you that for all of eternity we will look on you, we will see your scars and be reminded of the price that you paid so that we could have life. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you.